Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Audrey Rinlisbacher. I'm the founder of The Mission Driven Mom and author of The Mission Driven Life. If you're enjoying this podcast, please share it out and subscribe so you never miss an episode. We'd love reviews so others can know how much you're enjoying it. And of course, you can join the Mission Driven Mom Mastermind Facebook group for the after the show discussion. Today we get to do a mission-driven story where I outline the seven laws of life mission in the life of a great individual whose impact on society was profoundly positive. Today we get to talk about Clara Barton, and it was such a joy learning about her. One of the first things I did was grab her autobiography, The Story of My Childhood, which she wrote in her 80s. She died at 90 years old and just had an extraordinary life. She was asked by children. In fact, the beginning of this little uh, book has some letters from school children that wrote to her after the Civil War, asking her to please tell her story so they could learn about her. And so she started writing down memories that she had from her childhood. And it took her another, you know, uh, 30 plus years to actually get it on paper and get it published. But she did do that, which is marvelous. She was born on Christmas Day, which is really cool, in 1821 in North Oxford, Massachusetts. She had four older siblings who were almost 12 years older than her. So there was a huge gap, four kids and then 12 years and then her. The older siblings were two boys and two girls. So she was definitely the baby of the family and got a lot of time and attention from everyone. Of course, her family was very devout Christian. She was taught um, the Christian religion. They were um, very open-minded people. And we're going to learn, uh, hear some stories about principles that they taught her and experiences that she had in her childhood. But they were universalist. And she said she was raised universalist. And I don't know uh, at what point that they kind of joined that sect. But one of the primary doctrines of that sect is that all mankind is saved, uh, that God is too loving to only save some. So you can see a little bit of that frame of reference and belief system in her, in her attitude toward others and, um, the choices that she made in her life and the service that she did. Now, each of these older siblings had special interests and talents and they took, they took Clara under their wing and mentored her. She had many mentors. It's really cool to hear about um, the kinds of things that her family did for her. So, for example, she had one sister who had already become a teacher. And one that was studying to be a teacher. So her sisters took on her book learning when she was little. She said of her family... It is enough to say that each one manifested an increasing personal interest in the newcomer and as soon as developments permitted, set about instructing her in the various directions most in accord with the states and pursuits of each. So that was how she um, kind of talked about these siblings that were so good to her. Her brother, Stephen, was a noted mathematician. She says of him, 
He inducted me into the mystery of figures, multiplication, division, subtraction, halves, quarters, and holes, soon ceased to be a mystery, and no toy equaled my little slate. Her father, she said, was a lover of horses and one of the first in the vicinity to introduce blooded stock. He had large lands for New England, and he raised his own colts, Highlanders, Virginians, and Morgans, pranced the fields in idle contempt of the solid old farm horses. So they had that cool experience of having these horses on their property, and that was a huge priority for them. Uh, a couple other things she said about what her father taught her, which is so cool how it played into her letter, later life. He was Captain Stephen Barton. He had served as a non-commissioned officer under General Wayne in the French and Indian Wars and on the Western Frontiers. His soldier habits and tastes never left him. Those, those were also strong political days, Andrew Jackson days, and very naturally my father became my instructor in military and political lore. Um, now, of course, we know that she wound up in the Civil War right on the battlefield, and she we'll talk about that more a little bit later, but it's amazing how she was not intimidated by any of that and was so familiar with it and 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 loved loved the men that were in the military because of her father and his exploits and what he told her. She said, I listened breathlessly to his war stories. Illustrations were called for, and we made battles and fought them. Every shade of military etiquette was regarded. Generals, colonels, captains, and sergeants were given their proper place and rank. So with the political world, the president and cabinet and leading officers of the government were learned by heart, and nothing gratified the keen humor of my father more than the parrot-like readiness with which I lisped these often difficult names and the accuracy with which I repeated them upon request. She was a brilliant little girl, but she was also made more brilliant by the kind of tutoring she got from her family. Um, she said, later, I, like all the rest of our country people, was suddenly thrust into the mysteries of war and had to find and take my place and part in it. I found myself far less a stranger to the conditions than most women, or even ordinary men for that matter. I never addressed a colonel as captain, got my cavalry on foot, or mounted my infantry. So her understanding of the language and how the military functioned and her familiarity with leading figures in the history and all of that made a huge difference. And we find this over and over again. It reminds me of the experiences Mother Teresa had as a little girl um, with her mother and tutored by her mother to care for the very ill. It's, it's so incredible how um, these individuals get the kind of experiences and education they need that will then be a huge benefit to them later on. She says of her mother, my mother, like the sensible woman that she was, seeming to conclude that there were plenty of instructors without her, attempted very little, but rather regarded the whole thing as a sort of mental conglomeration and looked on with a kind of amused curiosity to see what they would make of it. <laughs> so her mother didn't even have any homeschooling to do because all the rest of the family was so involved and engaged. And they started when she was very young. Now, the one um, in her family that was the most precious to her, because he took her un under her wing at the age of two and younger, um, and who she later nursed, which we'll talk about in a little bit, was her older brother, David. She says of him, to say that David was fond of horses describes nothing. 
One could almost add that he was fond of nothing else. He was the Buffalo Bill of the surrounding country, and here commences his part of my education. It was his delight to take me, a little girl five years old, to the field, seize a couple of those beautiful young creatures, broken only by the halter and bit, and gathering the reins of both bridles firmly in hand, throw me back upon the back of one colt, spring upon the other himself, and catching me by one foot and bidding me cling fast to the mane, gallop away over field and fen, in and out among the other colts in wild glee like ourselves. They were merry rides we took." And so he uh, taught her writing. He also taught her many practical skills. She talks about him um, being really exacting in his instruction in practical things. She says, He detested false motions, wanted the thing done rightly the first time. If we started to go somewhere, go. If I started to go somewhere, go and not turn back. If to do something, do it. I must throw a ball or a stone with an underswing like a boy and not a girl and must make it go where I sent it and not fall at my feet and foolishly laugh at it. If I would drive a nail, strike it fairly on the head every time and not split the board. If I would draw a screw, turn it right the first time. I must tie a square knot that would hold and not tie my horse with a slip noose and leave him to choke himself. These were little things still a part of the instructions not to be undervalued. In the rather practical life which has sometimes fallen to me, I have wondered if they were not among the most useful and if that handsome frown were not one of my best lessons. So this time that she spent with David all through her childhood was instructive of all the practical skills and what would be called at the time masculine skills. She had a lot of abilities and a lot of extensive knowledge in doing very practical things that of course served her well in the battlefields and all through the Civil War in America and later when she was following the Red Cross around. I mean, she was caring for wounded and helping the Red Cross in her 60s and 70s. Really, really so amazing. So the instruction and the education that she had as a young girl really formed um, who she became later on. And as part of those kind of laws two through four that she uh, was experiencing. Now, um, a love of God... It, all through her book and through her writings, God's just a presence. Her belief in God, she quotes scripture uh, regularly. Her belief in God was was very solid. She was taught that in her home. It's very comes through very clearly. She was also taught principles. And it seemed, the first time I read a couple of these stories, it seemed almost a little bit harsh to me. But I see now that they were fashioning her character and really driving home certain principles that they felt that she struggled with trying to strengthen her weaknesses and, and help her become a, a woman of principle, which she really was. So she had this really endearing trait that she was very generous. And so as soon as she was given anything, especially like a, like a treat, somebody would give her, you know, some cake or something along those lines. She said um, she would call everybody in and have them sit down. She says, uh, they would all sit down and share my gift with me as I ne never took of it alone. A line or circle was formed comprising the entire family, Button, her dog, occupying the last seat. I then proceeded to make a careful hand count of each, including Button, and then retired and accurately divided my gift a piece for each, but not myself, as I was not in the count. She would forget to leave herself out when calculating who would get pieces of whatever this was. 
uh, because she was so desperate to share it with all the people she loved. I then went and gave a piece to everyone. The fun came in watching the silent wonderment and resignation with which I contemplated my own empty hands, a condition of things I could not at all comprehend, but made no complaint. So she would hand it all around and then everyone would kind of giggle about the fact that she had not left herself any. So then she goes on. Um... Each in generous sympathy, each of the family members in generous sympathy, offered to give me back his or her peace. But here came in my careful mother's protest and command, so solemnly heard. No. She said I must be taught to think, I must not be taught to think I could give a thing and still possess it or its value. A gift must be outright. I must do earnestly all that I did. Each might generously give me back a very small piece to make it all no more than would have been my share. And I must be made to understood that even this was a favor and not a right. So they would all give her a tiny little bit back until it equaled what would have been her equal share. But her mother was very careful to let her know that when she gave something, she was to do it with her whole heart and give it entirely and expect no part back, expect nothing in return, which of course is a phenomenal lesson um, and really built her character. Another example of a time when her parents were teaching her core principles um, was when <laughs> uh, there were some boys who loved to ice skate and um, girls, I guess, weren't allowed to ice skate. And it turned out in the end that her dad didn't necessarily mind her ice skating, but she didn't know that. And so they would, they would um, ask her and beg her to come out. And finally, one time she did, and they had skates for her and she snuck out and went ice skating, but she injured herself. And she hurt her knee so badly that she was able to kind of wrap up her foot or whatever it was, but then she was limping. And so she, um, she said, we decided to all keep silent, but how to conceal the limp? I not, must have no limp, but walk well. I managed breakfast, with, with, breakfast without notice, n dinner not quite so well, and I had to acknowledge that I had slipped down and hurt my knee a little. Um, and so she was still limping by the next day. So they looked her over. It happened that the best knee was inspected and, um, the stiff wool comforter soaked off and a suitable dressing given it. So after she was still limping the next day, uh, she said, this was a great relief as it afforded pretext for my limp. No one observing that I limped with the wrong knee. So, um, the other knee was not a wound to, he uh, let's see, finally it had to be revealed. The result was a surgical dressing and my foot held up in a chair for three weeks, during which time I read the Arabian Nights from end to end. <laughs> so I heard the surgeon say to my father that this was a hard case, Captain, but she stood it like a soldier. It was worse because she hit it for a day or two. And so the wound had gotten worse. And the, the um, surgeon was really impressed with how she, you know, stood stood strong and all those kinds of things and she saw that they all pitied her and how tenderly they nursed me even walking lightly about the house not to jar my swollen and severed limbs in spite of my disobedience and detestable deception so she had not only gone out without permission but she had done it on sunday and broken the sabbath ah uh, she said uh, my she says my my sabbath breaking and unbecoming con conduct all and all the trouble that I had caused revived my conscience and my mental suffering far exceeded my physical. 
I despised myself and failed to sleep or eat. So finally, um, her mother seeing how she's behaving, she comes and talks to her and it all comes out. And um, the lesson was not lost on any of the group. And so she was reprimanded and given consequences and taught that she should not do that again. But she was eventually given permission to ice skate and was able to go out and do it and reminded that had she just asked permission, she would have been unable to go another time. So um, this was another in, instance of, you know, the, the character of this woman at a young age comes to the forefront. She was so cared for and taken so good care of that she really her conscience really pricked her and she couldn't handle to go on that way now some really interesting things about um that was really her law three love of truth there's many examples um especially in her childhood but throughout her life where she's very honest about her weaknesses and weaknesses that she had to overcome um, she was very, very shy and her family was constantly trying to help her overcome her shyness and trying different things. And eventually, um, I'll tell that story in just a minute, she did overcome that shyness and it made a huge difference for her. She became a very bold woman in, in serving others. She was sent to school at three, could already read and already do vocabulary lessons and everyone was amazed. Um, she was also sent to a summer school at age five and give an incredible teacher. She talks very highly about the teachers, talks about all the different subject matter that she studied. In some instances, they created other subject matter um, like chemistry and other subjects specifically for her because she was so far advanced, largely due to the tutoring of her family and her own work ethic. Um, she, from ages six to eight, would study six months and then had six months kind of downtime. And she shares something uh, that happened during this time. She didn't like to be idle. And so this is how she, she spent her time. Um, so the six months of the year offered little change. And the others were long vacations in which the out of doors played by far the most prominent part. This was between the ages of six and eight. There were garden and flower beds to be made. Choice pets to look after, a few needy families with little children to be thought of, and some sewing to be attempted. These latter were in accordance with my mother's recommendations. Um, I recall no season of dolls and believe they were never included in my curriculum. So she was planting gardens and serving um, the poor and caring for her own animals. At one point, she had a huge flock of ducks that she took care of and other animals, um, she had her button, her dog, who was her uh, unfailing companion. And so just really quite an idyllic childhood with many important lessons learned and a lot of character built. At one point, she, uh, between the ages of eight and nine, she was sent to boarding school to try to cure her of this painful shyness. And um, her education was just incredible. She was learning about Ptolemy and the other ancient Greeks and, and reading classics. <laughs> Unbelievable, the kind of incredible education she received. Um, but she didn't do well. She, she, was, uh, she was too young to be boarding somewhere and it just didn't fit her temper. So she was sent back home. Now, about this time... Um, there was an, there's an incredible story in here about her family. They really sacrificed everything for another family member. She shares this story. 
A favorite nephew of my father, Mr. Jeremiah Larned, had died after a lingering illness, leaving a widow and four children from 13 to 6 years of age on the fine farm which had descended to him from his father, Captain Jeremiah Larned, one of the leading men of the town. Unfortunately, during his long illness, the farm had become involved to the extent of necessitating a sale. This would result in depriving the widow and her small children of a home, and in order to prevent this and the disadvantage of a creditor's sale, it was decided that my father and my brother-in-law of Mrs. Larned, Captain Sylvester McIntyre, who had no children, purchased the farm and removed there, keeping the widow and children with them. Thus I became the occupant of two homes, my sisters remaining with my brothers, none of whom were married. So her family, even though they had these grown children, they must have been well into their 40s or 50s, these parents, they had loved this nephew and they wanted this widow and children to be able to have this farm and have a place to leave, live. So they'd inconvenienced themselves and moved out to this farm to put it in good repair for this widow and care for her and her children for a time. It was just absolutely amazing to me, that incredible example um of charity and love of humanity, that law for that it was exemplified to her. They, these children were right around her age and she suddenly had siblings and playmates. She said there was never an argument between them. They got along beautifully and she loved having that experience and watching the charity of her parents made a huge impression on her. Um, there was a, a, another experience where she talks about how, um, their family was always, she says, you know, there was all, there's always a family in every town where the newcomers always gravitate. And that was definitely their home. And whoever was new to the area would wind up at their house and, um, being cared for. And so lots of foreigners, lots of lively discussion, lots of great conversation around, um, new ideas that she was exposed to. And really, again, it reminds me of the Ten Boom family, the kind of culture. She says, the strangers would always gravitate to their house. My father's active and liberal mind inclined him to examination and toleration, and his cordial, cordial hospitality was seconded by my mother's welcome to anyone who could bring new thought or culture to herself or her family. So again, that love of humanity, learning about people of many, many cultures, understanding worldviews and history and, and the liberal education accompanied with this service to the community and to family really um, prepared her in those four foundational laws of life mission and, and put her on a path to do incredible things. She talks about some weaknesses that she had. Um, she says, uh, my family were all gratified by my progress and my deportment as a student, but I was still diffident, timid, noncommittal, afraid of giving trouble and difficult to understand. She was also very small and hadn't grown a lot. Now, she's talking about this at a little bit different uh, later date, but it was true all the way through her childhood. And at one point, her mother said she was the hardest child of any of hers to raise, not because she was obstinate or disobedient, but precisely because she would never tell anybody what she needed. <laughs> and so she tells a story about getting ready for church one morning and not putting on her gloves and her mother being frustrated that she never gloves on. And she said, well, 
I don't have any gloves. They had holes in them. And her mom says, why didn't you tell me? And she was so embarrassed. She started to cry because she hated, she had such a hard time expressing what it was that she needed. And she had to become better at that skill. Um, she tells about gaining really key skills and learning to overcome her shyness. And I, and I love these stories. Uh, I'll quickly share with you because it's really cool how really wanting something helped her to be more assertive. And it was usually to learn a skill or to care for someone. Um, at one point, their house, um, th they were doing some improvements and there was some painting that needed to be done. I think this was on the home that they went to live in uh, of the nephews. And so she says painters, um, painting included more um, in those days. The painter brought his massive white marble slab, ground his own paints, mixed his colors, boiled his oil, uh, cal calcined his plaster, made his putty, and did scores of things that a painter of today, now this is in the early 1900s, would not only never think of doing, but would often scarcely know how to do. And she was desperate to help him. She wanted to learn how to paint so badly. Um, and so she she would go over there and watch and watch and watch. And she says, my combined interest and curiosity for once overcame my timidity and encouraged by the mild genial face of Mr. Harris, I gathered the courage to walk up in front and address him. Will you teach me to paint, sir? With pleasure, little lady, if mama is willing, I should very much like your assistance. And so she worked with him full time as a volunteer for over a month, learning all of these skills. And she just would lose track of time. She loved it so much. Um, she says, so interested was I that I never wearied of my work for a day. And at the end of the month looked on sadly as the utensils, brushes, buckets, and great marble slab were taken away. <laughs> so she really absolutely loved it. And it helped her overcome some of those, some of those timid tendencies. On another occasion, she wanted to learn to dance and persisted in begging. She wasn't granted permission, but her brother started up a company, um, and she was in between school terms and wanted to be busy. And her brothers had this factory where there were weavers and she wanted to learn to weave. So again, she persisted in begging for the permission to weave. And her family wasn't sure it was a good idea and that she was too small and blah, blah, blah. You know, one thing that was really cool to see in this family is that as the older children grew and left home, they kind of formed fine part, kind of a family council. And she she talked several times of times when the family would get together, these grown children, and they would counsel with the parents on things that needed to be done for the family. And I, you know, I want to do that more as my children are getting older and leaving home. I was thinking, you know, that's a, that's an incredible family culture to have. And so they're having this kind of family council about this. And her brother, Stephen came over and he said to her mother, I don't see anything so very much out of the way in the request. I wonder if we're not drawing the lines too tight, the lines too tightly around our little sister. Um, he says, you know, we didn't let her learn to dance and we probably should have it. He says, for my part, I'm very willing to arrange a pair of looms for her and let her try. I crept up shyly up under his stalwart arm and kissed his bearded cheek. She just uh, was so grateful that her brother let her learn to do it. And she worked like a mad woman and was an expert at it in a short period of time, went to weave for a short time in the factory, but it actually burned down within just a few weeks of her starting. She said, even in her day, there were rumors around it that she had been a factory girl and helped to pay off her father's mortgage. Um, 
And that was, she says, I, she says, was it true at all? My father never even had a mortgage and I only worked for a few weeks. I wish it was true, but it wasn't. Um, it's interesting because it, it is true. There's a lot of folklore around her still in some of the stories still told about her. There are several different versions told. I, I'm not sure where to find all that correct information. So, of course, one of the most famous things we know about her childhood is caring for her brother. Um, this was a very pivotal time in her life. Um, she, he, he was, um, they, they were doing a barn raising and he was supposed to, he went up to the top because he was so strong and so agile. He was probably one of the best ones to do it. So they had him go up and help with this and he fell. And, um, he was injured very, very badly. And at the time he said, let's see, um, it was assigned his duty. He fell directly to the first floor, striking on his feet on another timber near the bottom of the cellar. And he stood up and acted like he was fine. And so everybody was shocked because <laughs> he seemed okay. I'm sure it was a concussion that uh, developed into other things is what must have been the, the, the case because he developed a headache, which turned into a fever and he got sicker and sicker and sicker and it, he was pronounced a settled fever. And of course, they used to bleed people back then, um, thinking that he had too much blood and and they they bled him from time to time. And he was calling out for his little sister. They had always been very, very close, and he wanted Clara near him. And in a very short period of time, she became his full-time nurse. Um, she says, sleepless, restless, in agony, both physical and mental, his case grew desperate. He had been my ideal from earliest memory. I was distressed beyond measure at his condition. And so she remained at his side and... Um, the fever ran on and over all the traditional turning point seven, 14, 21 days. I could not be taken away from him except by compulsion. And he was unhappy until my return. I learned to take all directions for his medicines from his physician and to administer them like a genuine nurse. Um, this went on for almost two years. She was about 11 years old, maybe 12. Um, she stayed at his side. She didn't go to school. She sat and, um, with him day in and day out caring for him as he languished. He, he didn't pass away and he didn't get any better. And they called in all kinds of experts and they tried all kinds of remedies and nothing worked. And so she was at his side and wouldn't leave his side. It made both of them so unhappy. The parents finally had to relent and couldn't let her, um, couldn't, couldn't make her leave. She said, I thought my position the most natural thing in the world. I almost forgot that there was an outside to the house. This state of things continued with little change, a trifling gain of strength in my patient at times for two years. And then all of a sudden a man came into town. He had a whole different approach to things. He said fever was a friend, not a foe. Um, they tried a new, um, they tried a vapor bath and stopped bleeding him. And in three weeks, she said he was so far restored as to return home and take his place in his business like one come back from the dead. And of course, at this point, I mean, she was using leeches with him. She gained all kinds of nursing skills. She 
she the 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 incredible her incredible ability for self-sacrifice was just unequal they could not believe it but this did make her even more timid which led to other measures to try to take her out of her timidity and then this really cool experience happened so these people would come and their parents would um entertain them and there were these men working on phrenology, trying to analyze the brain for understanding it better. And she, the mother took to this man. They became good friends. And she expressed to him uh, how difficult Clara was to manage. And they were afraid of neglecting her because she was so timid. And this man listened to all of these stories about Clara and how she cared for her brother and all of her strengths and weaknesses and all of that thing, all of this kind of stuff. And he was using this new um, science that he was pseudoscience that he was developing. Um, and she, so she's talking to this Mr. Fowler. And he replied that these characteristics were all indicated that however much her friends might suffer from them, she would always suffer more. And then he said to her mother, they may be apparently outgrown, but the sensitive nature will always remain. She will never assert herself for herself. She will suffer wrong first, but for others, she will be perfectly fearless. To my mother's anxious question, what shall I do? He replied, throw responsibility upon her. She has all the qualities of, of a teacher. As soon as her age will permit, give her a school to teach. And I couldn't figure out if she was 15 or 17, but somewhere around that time, um, she stood for the teacher's examination, passed it with flying colors, was given a school. And because of all of this playing with boys and having older brothers and learning all these practical skills, she totally shone as a teacher. In fact, after just one year, she was awarded the areas. I can't remember if it was the area or the state. She won the award for the best discipline in her school. And at first she protested because she never disciplined anyone. But it was because she and the students understood each other so perfectly. And she was such an amazing teacher and could control the boys that they absolutely adored her. And she was so... Uh, profound a teacher in fact the way that she started out the first day the boys these older boys were her same age and they had determined to give her a hard time but she walked into the classroom opened the bible to the sermon on the mount and they read through it and discussed what it meant and that was how she kicked off her experience as a teacher uh, she became she was very sporty, very uh, tomboyish and very good at outdoor games. And so she pulled out of her timidity and gained confidence. And of course, the rest is kind of, as we would say, history. Um, her autobiography ends with the story of her brother, David, asking her to attend his wedding far off. Uh, they had to take a boat, so I'm not sure how far away they went, but she traveled further than she ever had. She was made bridesmaid. And um, then she went on to do all the incredible things that she did in her life. I'll just recap really quickly um, those those these formative years. You can see the love of God, the love of self, as she learned the importance of meeting her own needs and speaking up so that she could care for herself. But she was had this incredible capacity for sacrificing herself for others which she had the opportunity to develop definitely had the incredible education understood principles knew how to live by principles spoke of principles um was taught them by her parents and then of course loved humanity loved all mankind and was very acquainted with people from all walks of life 
She was a teacher for 12 years. She also went back to Clinton Liberal Institute and studied writing and languages. She, um, in her 30s, contracted uh, to open a free, a, a free school in Bordentown, made it a huge success. And then when the school, when the town raised money for a new building, they appointed a new principal and she tried to work under him, had a nervous breakdown. That led her to the U.S. Patent Office, where she was really abused for being successful, basically, at what she did as a woman, was demoted until James Buchanan fired her because of her abolitionist views, what he called her black republicanism. She was very principled in her approaches to government and and wanted the felt the the slave should be freed and all of this and so he fired he fired her as as the democrat that he was and then of course when lincoln went into office she was reappointed in the patent office and then of course that happened right before the civil war broke out the baltimore riot brought victims from massachusetts her home state to to uh washington dc and she went immediately to the railway station and nursed 40 men right off of the train and that began her service in uh the civil war she wrote letters uh, raised supplies fed and nursed them until eventually she begged permission to go to the front and was denied many, many times, finally given permission on the condition that she would receive no pay, no supplies, and no help. <laughs> but she did it anyway, which led to saving thousands of lives. Um, there are many well-documented stories of many bullet holes that went through her dress while she was on the battlefield, while bullets were flying, and she was never injured on the battlefield, which is why she earned the name Angel of the Battlefield. Of course, after the war, she went, she created the Office of Missing Soldiers, eventually found 50,000 missing soldiers and had many tens of thousands of them properly buried and that information relayed to their families. She toured the U.S. on a speaking tour and then went to Europe and was introduced to the Red Cross. I think it's interesting to note that she was involved in uh, the Civil War in her 40s. She was 40 years old when it broke out and 45 and into her, you know, almost 50 when she was um, helping with that and founded the American Red Cross at 60. So no retirement for her. She ran the American Red Cross until she was 83 years old and never stopped working. As soon as she retired from that, she started up another nonprofit organization, charitable organization to help with things, wrote her autobiography and died at 90. So definitely um, those last three laws of, of hearing the call, she answered it courageously. She always had lots of opposition to her new ideas, opposition as a teacher, opposition in the patents office, opposition in the Civil War, opposition to opening the American Red Cross, <laughs> founding that. So definitely lived those seven laws of life mission. And just, I, I'm just, I know she had her faults and I know she wasn't a perfect woman, but she's absolutely amazing. And I would encourage you to get that autobiography, read it with your children, share this podcast with them and be inspired by the incredible life of, of a very, very great woman who sacrificed herself to truly change the world. If you don't have your free copy of The Mission Driven Life, which teaches these seven laws of life mission, please head over to themissiondrivenmom.com and get your free ebook and audio book there, and we will see you next time.